So I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you're about to be hung. I know it's not like the most chipper thought, um, but you're, you're about to be hung. You're in a different time where hanging still is, is part of the, the way that they deal out justice. And so you, you committed a crime or you didn't commit a crime and you're about to be hung. And the, the executioner comes over and puts a sack over your head as he used to do. And you're up on a platform, uh, maybe known as the gallows, okay? And they, they've bound you and they're just about to kick out the floor where your body will drop and you'll die. And so you already have the sack over your head. You've, you're working through like, okay, I have like two seconds left. What do I do with these last two seconds? And then all of a sudden, someone comes over, removes the sack from your head. They're holding a golden crown. They put the crown on your head. They cut the cords that have been binding you. And the people that were there to watch your execution all of a sudden start cheering for you. And they bring you royal robes and the robes are put onto you. And you are now in this place of, whoa, I hear me over there. (laughs) Uh, You can hear on all sides because the sack is now taken off of your head. It's amazing. Um, But all of a sudden, you're put in this place of of prominence and preeminence, and you're now a leader, right? That's kind of a crazy story. That could never happen, but that's kind of the story that did happen in the book of Esther. This is a story that we've been tracking with this this whole time. It's a story of how uh, Esther ends, really. Mordecai is this guy. Mordecai is a cousin of Esther. The book is named Esther after Esther. Okay, surprise, surprise. So Mordecai basically has raised his cousin. Uh, This is a a quick synopsis of the book. Mordecai has raised his cousin because her parents died. They've been living in captivity for about 60 years as a family or so. And so they've lost connection with the homeland, with the home base, Um, And they've been living in the Persian Empire because Persia um, overtook the Babylonians as the the world empire of that time. And so uh, Esther is is living with with Mordecai, and yet there's this, this thing that's going all throughout the Persian Empire to gather the young virgins together because the queen has just been removed. The king fired her, sent her out from her place, and he's looking for a new wife. And so Esther, part of the people of God, becomes the wife of this king who's not part of the people of God. And so they become uh, husband, wife. Esther takes power. Uh, There's this guy named Haman. Haman becomes second in command in the world. Haman doesn't like the Jewish people because this guy named Mordecai won't bow down to him. So Haman figures out a plan to wipe out all of the Jewish people in all of 127 of the king's provinces. So this is just gonna be like a, a washing a cleansing from the Jewish people or the people of God. And so Esther and Mordecai worked together this plan to have Haman removed from power. And so Haman, actually last week we saw that he, he dies and that Mordecai gets placed in a significant place of preeminence and the, the day of annihilation actually becomes a day of reversal, the day where all of the Jews across 127 provinces are supposed to be killed is the day of now protection where the Jews are gonna be able to protect themselves. And so that's where we're at today. The end of the book, Haman's killed, uh, King and Esther still living in their castle, and Mordecai is now in second place in command. The year is about 475 BC, somewhere between 480, 470, 460, somewhere in there. 
And so we're gonna be looking at uh, verses from Esther. Uh, I'm gonna put them up on the screen today, but if you need a Bible as you're leaving today, please grab one of those. We'd love uh, to gift that to you. So Esther chapter eight, uh, the middle of chapter eight till Esther chapter 10, and we'll try and do this in a short time. So Esther eight, here we go. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. This is a guy that was supposed to be killed, right? He had the proverbial sack taken off of his head, and now the city is losing their mind over this man, Mordecai. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So this people that, was, that they were as good as dead are now alive. They're now alive. And, and this one leader, Mordecai, is now wearing royal robes. And he's growing in fame and, and prominence in the nation, in the, the, the empire, look, Esther 9, verse 4, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So these, these Jews, these people who are supposed to be destroyed, we just saw in the verses previous that now they're feasting, now they're celebrating, now they're excited, now there's gladness, now there's celebration, and so much so that, that the people who aren't Jews are now saying, yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, right? I, I want to be part of that. I want in on that. I want to be part of this celebration. I want to be part in whatever is going on. It became fashionable on that day to become part of the people of God. And so though they weren't yet a people of God, they desired that because of what the people of God were experiencing, the nations calling themselves the people of God. This is foreshadowing what we're gonna see later on this morning and further on in the text of the Bible. But this day of annihilation that was supposed to happen, now it's been reversed. Look at what takes place, chapter nine, verse one to three. In the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, so just as they're like raising the sword, the guillotine about to drop the people to, to be hung, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. No one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. The empire is ready to protect the people of God. All of the government officials are ready to protect the people of God. Lots of enemies were, were looking forward to this day, right? Reeling in excitement for this day where they now had permission from the king to destroy their enemies. But the king is protecting these people through his permission. I give you permission to protect yourself against those who are going to come at you in harm. And on that day, the Jews protected themselves, and here's what happened. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword 
killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now, what we need to know is that this, these weren't the people of God like rushing through houses and taking people and separating people as we see the ridiculousness that's happening now uh, just south of us, right? This wasn't a separation um, thing, but those who were trying to harm them, they were able to protect themselves against them. In, in chapter nine, verse six, which we won't look at, we find out that there were 500 in Susa, the capital that died that day. And across all of the king's land, check out what happened. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. 75,000 people desiring openly to kill the people of God. That is wild. And that the Lord would intervene at just the right time to stop this from happening and allow for his people to be able to protect themselves through permission given from the king. So this massive slaughter takes place and the king looks at Esther and says this in chapter nine, verse 11, the very day the number of those killed in Susa was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And we just found out. Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. God and his sovereignty and his control, God and his providence, so the way that he's moving things around allows for protection to come in for his people at the last minute. But what's so interesting is that the, the, the people of God are not interested in taking everything of the people that they're protecting themselves from. It says over and over in this text that they laid no hands on the plunder. They didn't take any of the stuff they could have gone in and ransacked the stuff and gotten the money and taken the bed and the Ikea thing that would have broken as they were transporting it to the next door, right? Like, they, they didn't take any of that. They left it all. They just wanted to be free to protect themselves. They're not looking to take from the enemies but to be protected from. And it's done. Protection from the enemies is over. I mean, harm from the enemies is over. Protection is, is continuing to move forward. And so what do you do when your enemies lose? You feast. You celebrate. The Super Bowl was, was a day of mourning for me. Um, but normally, it's a day of feasting, right? It's a day of celebration. It's, a, it's an exciting day. Super Bowl is this football thing. I showed you the tape before. Uh, football is this thing you pass, you don't kick with your foot. I know the World Cup thing's happening. It's confusing, all right? Moving on. But there's a feast. They have a feast, and here it is. 
Chapter nine, verse 17 to 19. On the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. So what happened in Susa, they protected themselves for two days. The rest of the provinces was one day. And it says, therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Like, what do you do if death row is overturned? Right, you're sitting on the gallows, you're free. What do you do? You party, you celebrate that you are free. And what I love about this is that this party is mandated. Like you're forced to party. Have you ever worked with people? These people are so strange. Um, you're, there's, there's a mandatory like vacation and they're like, no, I'm just gonna cash in my vacation time. What? Like I, like I get the extra like $4 you're gonna get, but like vacation, fun, sun, excitement. You cash in. You cash in, there's, there's a party, there's celebration, mandated. God, maybe some of you are here and you're saying, man, God is like this old man stuck in a cos- the corner of the cosmos somewhere and he's not all that fun. He's this guy who, his beard just keeps growing longer and longer and when he's angry, he snaps and lightning happens. But what we read about God is that he's a God who mandates parties. He mandates that culture stops and that they celebrate what he has done for them. And so there's a party mandated. There's a party mandated here. And Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. So two-day feast as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And then in verse 27, 28, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail They would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every clan, province, city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Why would God mandate partying? Why would he mandate celebration? Because partying and remembering good news, um, in this case, was to remember that they, they were delivered, that they were, they were celebrating the fact that we were about to die and we've been freed, we've been set free. This is good news. This is good news. This is celebrating our freedom. Now, in the book of Esther at the beginning, there were significant parties that the king was throwing. And he threw them for about six months and they were all for his honor, his glory, and what he was hoping to do. So he's like wooing the, the governors and, and officials to, to have them see what a great and generous leader he would be for them. So don't mess with me, right? Hopefully I'll be able to deliver your, you as people one day, hopefully. But God has delivered his people. 
God has brought his people again out of the hands of, of his enemies. And so this, this, this party is a juxtaposition. Look at what the king was hoping to do versus what the true king, God, has done. I hope to deliver my people into safety all the time. I have delivered my people into safety. I, I hope to do this, so let's have a preeminent party. I, I have done this, so now we can really party. Now we can really celebrate. Anytime we compare God as king versus kings of this world, we see the deficiencies of the kings and queens and leaders of this world because they can't match what the true king really brings. The parties that God throws are because of what he's done, not trying to convince us of him maybe doing one day. You see, it's important for us to remember, right? Maybe some of the things you're hearing this morning, like, ah, I've heard about Jesus, I've heard about God, I've heard about the people of God being delivered. Can we move on to something else? No, no, we can't. Because our hearts have a hard time remembering. Not just for your exam, not just for your work, but our hearts have a hard time remembering that we have been freed. We so often live as slaves, we live as orphans, even as the people of God. And so what remembering and partying and celebrating and stopping and Sabbathing and resting does is it dismantles the fickle feeling. You know, so many of us think like, oh, God is against me, and I say, why? Well, I just feel like he is. Okay, but tomorrow you're feeling changed. Oh, okay, well, God's for me now. Our feelings are so fickle. You have bad pizza, you have, you have bad whatever the night before, and, and it's so easy to feel like God is against you the next day. But pizza and God have nothing to do with, with that. We're with each other in that moment. Remembering dismantles our fickle feelings and the lies that pervade our every day. Do you hear that? That remembering... Remembering destroys the lies that constantly barrage us. And what remembering does is it roots us in reality. That even though you might feel a certain way, that God is against you or for you because of a feeling, it's not about your feeling. Your feelings aren't the deepest reality. The deepest reality is that God has delivered you God has delivered his people. He has made you free. And we'll talk about how in just a minute. But here's a strange thing before we, we talk about the ending. The strange thing in the book of Esther that we've been looking at over and over and over is that there's still no mention of God. This feast that we see is not specifically to remember how God delivered us. There's nothing about it in here. So we can't necessarily read Esther as a book of, this is exactly what I should do. This is the example I should follow. I should create feasts that have nothing to do with God. Right? Of course we can't do that. Of course we can't do that. But here's the amazing thing about the book of Esther, that even though there's no explicit mention of his name, it's God who's clearly orchestrated everything in his time. If you struggle with God, I don't know if you're in control. Read the book of Esther again. God, I don't know if you can come through. It's last moment, last minute, and I just don't believe that you have control. Read the book of Esther again. That's how God works in this book. 
It's the book of last moments, the book of desperation, the book, if God doesn't show up, everyone loses their heads. But God does. And God, it, it says in his word, he says that he hasn't changed. He remains the same. So the same God of Esther is the God of us today. That he's the one that's orchestrating life. That, that you say, whoa, this is a crazy coincidence. Is it? Or is it another incidence of his providence placing things? In that moment where we say, oh, this is such a coincidence, that's a moment of worship. That's a moment where we should say, oh my God, you did this. You put this in place. You brought these people here for this time, for this reason. You see, God is continually moving toward his final victory, with or without mention. God's plan is not gonna be thwarted because his name isn't mentioned He's going to use people who don't mention his name. He's going to use people like Xerxes. He's going to use people that want nothing to do with him to accomplish his plans because that's the type of God he is. What he declares is going to happen will happen. We believe that God is a fully sovereign God, that even if, if Quebec got its sovereignty, right, apart from Canada, that the true sovereignty doesn't belong to this province or nation. True sovereignty belongs to the God of Esther, the God of Quebec, the God of Canada, the God who's here in our midst right now, orchestrating everything with or without mention from you. But here's the thing, that one day, every single person will recognize the work of God. You're here today maybe and you say, I want nothing to do with God. I don't believe he exists. One day you will recognize who God is and what he's done. You will. How can we say that? Well, well, he says it and you say, well, I don't believe what he says there. This is where I, I would invite you to be where so many of us have been before. God, I don't believe you're real. If you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? I'm here this morning. I don't trust you, don't love you. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm being very honest with you. Would you say that to him quietly? And then would you say, but if you're legit, if you're real, if this is all true, then I want you. Would you speak to me for the rest of this morning? I believe that God is a God who loves to answer those prayers. He's a patient God. He's a patient God. Even when we take credit for the things that he's done, oh, I planted this church. Oh, I did a great job with that. Oh, I built this company. Oh, I did this thing. Even when we take credit, he's, he's such a patient God with us because he knows what's real. He, he knows you didn't do that. He knows the only way that those things could have happened is because of his providence before you ever were a thought in your mom and dad's mind. He knew what you were gonna be. He formed you in the womb. You are not an accident. He has been orchestrating everything for this moment now. Where you get to hear again, or maybe for the first time, that God is a God that loves to deliver his people out of slavery and into freedom. 
He's a God who loves to deliver his people out of death into life. He's a God who loves to show up at the last minute where you're desperate and you finally cry out, God, I need you. And he says, I've been waiting for that. And it seems like I've, I wasn't going to come unless you said those words, but I was waiting for those words to show up so you know that I'm real. This is the God of Esther. This is the God who is here in our midst. And this is a God who's moving in what seems to be a godless world all around us. So the book of Esther ends, and it ends with this. Chapter 10, verse one to three. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he, was the, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So the book ends with Mordecai being second in command. The book ends with Mordecai being this great and popular leader. The book ends hearing that Mordecai is now seeking the welfare of the people of God and the peace of the people of God in all of the places that his power can go out into. And the king... The king had so many things going on and was so focused on himself. We saw that all throughout the book. One of the most egotistical people that the king wanted someone else to do all the work. So Mordecai was really the guy like out getting things done. That when people saw Mordecai coming, there was fear because of the power that he walked with. But where the book also ends is that this, this king, this egotistical king who did great things for the people of God in a sense, but almost, well, he did give the edict to have them wiped out. So this almost good king, but not really good king, he's still in charge. He's still a top dog in all of the worlds. And so what we're left with in this story is, is you're celebrating like, yay, Mordecai, but remember what happened to the last guy who was second in command in the world? He was killed in a moment. Mordecai is replaceable. It's not like Mordecai and the king were sipping fruity drinks together, hanging. Like, Mordecai could be replaced at any moment. So this book ends leaving us wanting, saying, who's gonna deliver the people of God the next time that something bad happens? Who's gonna step in the next moment when a king comes forward and wants to wipe out all of the people of God? Who's gonna be the king that's gonna deliver the people of God into an eternal victory, not just a momentary one? And actually, God sent a king to do just that. So we're closing a chapter on, on Esther, but Esther really isn't pointing to Esther. Esther's pointing to someone far greater. The book of Esther is all about Jesus, the one that God sent. And Jesus, when he came, he was clothed in humility and flesh. We believe that Jesus is God. He had no beginning, will have no end. We believe that he came in humility. Right, what God, all powerful, sovereign, omnipresent, what God would ever wanna take on flesh and come into our worlds, which is actually his world? What God would set his gaze on us as his people 
and be ferocious with love towards us. Well, we believe that the only true and living God is just that. All other gods, you have to go to a place, bow down to a thing, or acknowledge a thing, or bring your thing, or there's some relic or some hocus pocus thing, or you, you don't do something, you scream at the gods, you cut yourself, you, you know, the blood involved, sacrifice, like something to awaken and arouse the gods so that they will pay attention. And what does our God do? He leaves his throne and he comes down as a baby. I've had these weird thoughts holding a baby, every one of my kids, holding them, and, and you feel for a second the power that you have. You say, I could destroy this child, right? Like the power that I have, right? You could leave a baby there and, and, and the baby wouldn't make it. The baby's not gonna find milk. The baby's not gonna find sleep. The baby's not gonna change its diaper. Horrific things happen like this around the world. It's, it's horrible, but like there, there's power Mary and Joseph were holding a baby. Wise men weren't holding a baby. They were holding an older child, all right? Let's get that story straight. Shepherds come in. They see the baby, right? God is a baby. This seems crazy. This is the most humble plan I've ever heard of. And this is exactly what God does. He doesn't come in like King Xerxes, I am King Xerxes, you know, I have all power, I can do this thing. Comes as a baby, crying, needing to eat milk, needing to be changed. Listen to this, Philippians, a book in the New Testament. Paul writes this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, speaking to the church in Philippi, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, so being fully God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus comes, he humbles himself, he lives a perfect life. He lives a life unlike you or I, unlike your kids and my kids, right? He lives a life where he's constantly seeking the welfare of the people of God, the reconciliation between the people of God with God, and he's constantly seeking peace, but not just for now, not just now, because peace treaties can be ripped up. They can be thrown away. Amazing things potentially happening in, in Korea, right? Amazing things. But we feel like that's so fragile and, and something could go wrong at, at any moment, and, and the whole thing could, could go to crap, right? But when Jesus comes, when he comes, he, he's seeking this peace that will be eternal. That is, Jesus is, is tracking and living his life. He's only doing what is good, right, and true. And here's the thing. The religious leaders that were supposed to be leading the people of God to worship God, they wanted to kill this king that had been sent by God and in fact was God himself. The leaders wanted to kill him. The leaders were fine letting an insurrectionist like Barabbas go free. Okay, just at the moment, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, uh, he's going to condemn Jesus and then he says, oh, wait a second, I have this tradition that I let someone go. Would you like Barabbas, this, this murderer, this thief, 
Would you like me to let him go instead of this guy who seems to be really good? And they're like, free Barabbas. Let the murderer out. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they let the enemy go so that he could die. And as Jesus was being crucified, the city rejoiced. They would walk by him and surely spit on him because most criminals weren't crucified way up in the air. They were usually crucified at eye level so that the accusers could come in front of them and spit on them and slap them and do whatever they wanted to do to them as they were being crucified. And they were crucified usually naked. And so it was a very embarrassing, to say the least, ordeal. The one that God sent, the better king, comes, humbles himself, and goes to a cross to be humiliated. But not just humiliated, to become wickedness. Your wickedness and my wickedness against God went on to Jesus. There was an exchange that took place in the cross that Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin, Paul writes in another place in the New Testament, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become right with God. The only one who's ever right with God became sin, became wrong with God so that we could become right with God. It seems like he were a powerless victim. It seems like Jesus were a powerless victim in the wrong place at the wrong time. But just the opposite was true. Just at the right time, the humble, true, sovereign king came to bear the weight of our sin on the cross. The good news for us, though, is that it wasn't the cross where the story of Jesus ends. They take Jesus' body down, they put him inside of a tomb, and three days after they had killed Jesus, he, he raises from the dead. And here we read in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, and hear this, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow or will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, one day, every single tongue will say, you are Lord, you are the one, you are the king. And it will either be by faith that I truly believe this and have submitted my life to you before this day where I'm seeing you face to face, or it'll be by force. When the glory of Jesus is revealed, it'll be one of those moments like in the movies where you know, one of the superheroes hits their thing on the thing and something sweeps over everyone and they all fall over or bow down. When Jesus' glory is seen, every knee hits the floor. It doesn't matter what you came into it with, what belief you had before, all of those die to the truth in that moment because you will see for the first time, the millionth time, that this is the way, the truth, and the life. And you will confess Jesus is Lord. 
going to happen. So what I wanna do is, is, is talk about the end for a minute. The Bible is a trajectory that's moving forward and we actually hear about what happens after life on this earth, which is actually God remaking the earth and heaven and earth come together. But listen to Jesus' words in, in Matthew 25. And before I get into that, I, I wanna say that these are Jesus' predictions of what's going to happen. Okay, they're predictions. But Jesus predicted that he was going to rise from the dead. So on that basis alone, right, if someone says, I'm gonna raise from the dead, they raise from the dead, and they say, I think it's gonna rain today, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna get behind you. Right, like you seem right about a lot of things, especially the whole resurrection thing. Uh, your predictions are gonna trump uh, my iPhone, right? I'm listening to you. So here we go, Matthew 25. These are Jesus's words before he was, he was crucified. When the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when Jesus comes, he's not coming again as little baby Jesus, Talladega Nights, you know, golden fleece diaper. Like, he's not coming like that. I, I might have aged myself in giving that example, by the way. Uh, but he's coming as ruler. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, gives this picture of Jesus when he comes back. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything clearly. He doesn't miss anything. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. He's ruler over every nation, every tribe, tongue. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. John who's writing this, also writes another book in the New Testament called John, and he calls Jesus the word, the logos. So same person, Jesus is coming in. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. There's not like a literal sword like wagging back and forth, but this is the power that comes from the mouth of Jesus. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's the thing. I don't know where you're tracking with, with who Jesus is. Some of you might think, I's a good example, a nice teacher, a prophet, whatever. But Jesus will not allow you to make your own Jesus. It's not a build-a-bear type of thing. It's not a paint by numbers and you choose the numbers. Jesus says, this is who I am. This is who I am, that I am the righteous warrior judge that is truly ruling and reigning over all things. I'm not coming back as a baby. I'm not coming back in humility. The veil is being torn open, and you're going to see full Jesus coming for the glory of his Father, and anyone who is against his Father, he is removing. This is powerful. Matthew 25, 32, Jesus continues, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus in Christianity is not a Western idea, it's a global reality that Jesus is the God of all nations, not just of the West. And Jesus is going to separate sheep from goats as a shepherd 
would. And this is based on the response to Jesus. Have you submitted your life to Jesus? Do you believe Jesus died in your place? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is the true captain and leader of your life? For those who say yes, Jesus says you are part of my people. What do you have to do to be part of the people of God? Say yes, I want you to be my leader and my forgiver, and that's it. And Jesus separates them, sheep. And all those who have said, no, me, I'm ruler. Anything else other than Jesus, Jesus separates them into the goats. We'll continue. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, those who have submitted their lives to him, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's, it's yours. Take it. Enjoy it. Enjoy me. For those on the left, Jesus says this, and these, these words are sobering. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, from you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's either we're blessed, inherit, enjoy me, or depart. You are cursed and you are an eternal enemy of my father and I will not let you into his presence because you did not submit to me. The only way to be with the one you were made for. And he ends his talk in Matthew 25, 46, saying, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, some people have played with this verse. Don't, don't play with this verse. Don't toil with this verse. People have tried to diminish this eternal punishment. No, it's not what Jesus was really saying. Like, who, who are you? Oh, you got a book deal, big deal. Anyone can get a book deal now. You can publish yourself on Amazon, right? Doesn't matter. Oh, you know some, some Hebrew and some Greek. Oh, good for you. Don't play with this. Don't try and make Jesus say something other than he's saying. Jesus is saying there's eternal life, value, meaning, purpose in my presence, or there's eternal punishment. There's eternal death that is taking place. And the book of Revelation picks up on that. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and by the way, if you worship anything other than the true and living God, you're an idolater. So you're like, wait a second, I'm not a sorcerer, I'm not a murderer, I'm not on this category. Yes, you are, and if you say, no, I'm not, you're a liar, so he hit you there too. All liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And don't play with this either. Oh, it's, it's probably not real. Like this is, you know, you're being too literal about this. Oh, this is pretty literal. That there's an eternal punishment, there's an eternal death that takes place. This isn't a scare tactic. This isn't a scare tactic. This is reality being opened up. And I know this is hard to hear. I know this is hard to hear. But here's the good news, is that you weren't made for this. You weren't made for this. Remember in Matthew 25, just a few verses back, we saw that, that this was prepared for the devil and his angels, demons. This wasn't made for you. 
but because of our rebellion. Unless we submit to Jesus, this is our future. It's a future of separation. It's a future of solitary. And, and people think, ah, oh, hell is gonna be like beers with my buddies and you know, we'll be hanging out and they get like a South Park, probably dating myself as well, but a South Park type of view. But it's solitary. It's painful. It's the absence of the one that you were made for. And that's your eternity. You weren't made for this. And so here's what's offered. Revelation 21, one through five. I saw a new heaven, new earth. This is what's coming. The first heaven, first earth, they passed away, the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Heaven and earth meet face to face with God. He wipes away the last tear that you'll ever cry. He makes you new. He makes all things new. You're enjoying the one that you were made for. He does the final deliverance that the deliverance that Mordecai brings about is actually pointing to that this is what you're made for. You're made for God, not an eternal solitary. You're made for hedonistic pleasure forever that's found in Jesus, not for an eternal damnation. This morning, God is saying, I'm here, turn to me. I wanna give you this. I'm not this dodgy old man. I'm, I'm this father who's running at you with arms of love saying, I want you in my house. I want you at my table. I want you as my child. Why won't you listen to me? Because God is speaking to you this morning. And one day by faith or by force, you will recognize that today you heard this invitation from God. Here's what we were made after this I looked and behold a great multitude no one could number from every nation all tribes peoples languages standing before the throne and before the lamb who is Jesus clothed in white robes that's what Jesus purchased for us not bath robes but righteous linens because of what he's done with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the lamb. Rescue belongs to him, he's done it. He's our deliverer. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. No one gets tired of being in the presence of God and worshiping him. He doesn't need an update ever. His glory is the same and it's overwhelming forever. In verse 12, saying, amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. And so I wanna end our time with this, that Jesus is the great deliverer. He purchased on the cross and through his resurrection an invitation for you. Last night, I was at this feast. 
Massive feast after, after the wedding. Amazing. Celebration, excitement, and it's like this is just a foretaste of, of what's to come, the celebration. When Jesus walks in a room, you think that the bride and groom, they come in and it's like, eh, eh, like, that's nothing. When Jesus walks in the room, unless the Lord has made it so that our voices just don't wear out, everyone's losing their voice. Everyone's losing their mind. Everyone is saying like, encore, do it again, come back in again. We wanna see it again. This is what Jesus is on about. And he says to every single person here today, you're invited. You're invited. He's gonna do all the work. Your RSVP is this. I submit to you. I believe you. I give my life to you. And you're in. You're brought into his family. You get a new name. You get a new start. You're made a new creation. Here's the invitation. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here it is. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Are you spiritually thirsty? Are you tired of going to chapters or Amazon looking for the next how to? Are you tired of trying to find your deepest identity in your sexuality? Are you tired of trying to find your deepest identity in your work or your bank account or what people think of you or how many followers you have on whatever social media account or how you look or how many miles you run or how late you sleep or how many kids you have? Are, are, are you just tired of that? Are you thirsty? Jesus says, whoever's thirsty, come. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you water. No payment. I, I made all the payment. I'm gonna satisfy your soul. Your eternity is gonna be keep coming to me, enjoying me, being satisfied in me. You are loved and welcomed. And, and if you're doubting, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose in saying, all right, Jesus, I, I want this if this, is all, if this is legit. If this is true, I want in. Would you convince me that it's true? And he will. And so we end our Esther series here. Revelation 22, 20, 21, the last two verses in the Bible says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. These are Jesus's words. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Jesus is coming soon, but his grace can be enjoyed right now. It's like Christmas right now, a gift for you right now. And so we can party. We can party. I know some of us partied late last night, but you can party again, even in your tired bodies, like bags under your eyes, like, you know, just rub it out, come on. And like, you can party again this morning because of what Jesus has done for you. The king has fought for you and won. Isn't that good news? The king has fought and won. He's secured for you a place at, at, the, at the table. And it's not the far off, like, last seat. It's right next to him. I don't know how all that works, but we're not gonna be vying to get closer to him. Somehow, he's gonna be in proximity to all of us. No one's, like, last at the line. Everyone is full on in because of what he has done. And isn't it good news that we have everything we need to celebrate? 
This is good news. So this morning, it's okay to celebrate. All right? All right? Capiche? Like, I don't know what language you want. Uh, like, that's all I got. It's all I got. So we, we can celebrate today. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the music team to come forward. And I'm going to pray. Uh, my prayer is going to begin for those who are here that don't yet know Jesus. Today, if you don't yet know Jesus, I want for you to know him today. I would love for you to meet him today. And so I'm going to pray. And you can pray this wherever you're at this morning, if you believe this. So here we go. Uh, Jesus I am seeing that, that I am a rebel of you, and I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for me and my sin. I, I receive that today. And I believe that you are alive. I believe that you have conquered death for me so that I could be made a child of God. And I want you today. And I just want to encourage you to, if that's your heart, if that's your prayer, that today you've been made new. That we'd love to talk to you after about how to follow up with this. And so now I'm gonna pray in celebration. Jesus, would you help us celebrate? You have done the great work, the far better work than Xerxes or, or Mordecai could do. You have fought, delivered us. This is good news. Help us to celebrate. So many of us were dancing about a wedding last night. But we get to dance again this morning and celebrate and sing and give and shout and be glad because of the great wedding that's coming where you are brought together with your bride, where we get to see you face to face, where we get to behold you. We get to like grab onto your shoulders. We get to be hugged by you. We get to be brought in. We get to have our last tear wiped away from you. We get to have you pick up our chin and say, I love you so much. That's what we're walking into. So would you help us to celebrate that this morning? And I pray that as we leave here today, that we would leave with hearts of celebration, stoked that we would be called children of God. Help us respond well this morning. We love you and we need you. Amen.